This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Big thanks to Fee for the last three hours of MAPS. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by a woman who has watched almost 900 films this year, one of the most prolific writers I've ever met, (laughs) film reviewer, Nadine Whitney. Hey, Nadine. Hello, Dr Ford. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well. It's nice hearing Dr Ford. I don't use it often enough. I've got to start putting that on uh, when I book flights. If I ever get around to booking flights, I feel like (laughs) it's gotten expensive. But that's not the theme of tonight's show. We're talking all about (laughs) movies. uh, We are. (laughs) I also have a very prolific, another writer, author of the novel Hyacinth. It's Will Cox. Hello. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well. I haven't watched 900 films this year. (laughs) I've watched a few, I think. Uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like this year is obviously we watch about two to three each week for the show, but I don't know, it all kind of melts into one. I need to start going back to um, keeping a film diary. I used to keep one. And I know people rave about Letterbox, but I haven't. I'm just uh, I haven't got around to it. <laughs> one day. That's a, that's how I know I've watched 900 oh, films. Letterbox. Really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So on tonight's show, we're going to be discussing uh, two films that are connected to books. Uh, the first, a screen adaptation of David Grant's 2017 novel, It's Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by the one and only Martin Scorsese. And for our second, it's the sixth Exorcist film, The Exorcist Believer. Lucky Dr- six. Yeah, lucky number six, <laughs> directed by David Gordon Green. And yes, okay, that film is not adapted from the book, but the very first Exorcist film was Mil- William Friedkin's 1973 film was adapted from a screenplay by William Peter Blatty and was based on Blatty's novel of the same name uh, from two years prior. Uh, so, yeah, a slightly book-themed show for tonight, at least book, book adjacent, yes. Um, uh, and we might wrap up with some, some recommendations as well if we've got time. Uh, so stay tuned. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. There's two trains running, in a way. The story that you want to tell and how you want to tell it. Sometimes my father would say, we'd talk about a film and then with his brothers or aunts and uncles and somebody would say, well, they can't do that in a movie. Oh, they can't. No, they can't show that or they can't do that. But I was, as a child, I was wondering why not? Why can't we tell the stories they're not supposed to tell? You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Nadine Whitney, Will Cox and myself, Flick Ford. And that was, of course, Martin Scorsese talking a bit about his storytelling approach. Uh, And this Thursday, Scorsese's 27th feature-length narrative film will be in cinemas around the country. There is a tremendous amount of anticipation about this film, not just because it's Scorsese, but also because it's an adaptation of one of the most highly acclaimed novels of 2017, David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon. 
Um, and I've got a little clip, which <laughs> I didn't have ready. That's always great when that happens. But luckily, we've got Nadine Whitney with us because, Nadine, you've written about this. Um, you've, your review just came out on this book, uh, this film. Um, <laughs> I'm going to play a clip that I – can you tell us a bit about the setup for this film before we get into it? Okay. So the film is essentially about the reign of terror in – the Osage County in Oklahoma, which started in the 20s but had its genesis in the finding of oil on the quite barren lands around around Osage County. And so we begin with a chief burying one of his tribal members saying, we must remember we must not become like them. And then the earth erupts, liquid gold reaches into the sky, Indian men are dancing with joy, and the next thing you know, the Osage people are per capita the richest people in America, and where money is, greed follows. Mm. Well, let's hear um, the trailer for the film now. The Osage took their name from Missouri and Osage rivers. Neukanska, children of the middle waters. Move, said the great white father. There are many, so many hungry wolves. Can you find the wolves in this picture? That was, of course, Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which is in cinemas from Thursday. Now, the film is directed by Scorsese and he co-wrote the screenplay with Eric Roth, who listeners will know as the screenwriter of films such as Forrest Gump, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, Star is Born and more recently June. Uh, and the screenplay for Killers of the Flower Moon is adapted from David Grant's uh, 2017 novel, as we said before. Um, Nadine, I understand you haven't read the novel, but you've done a lot of research into this. The book is based on a true story, isn't it? It absolutely is. It's based on William King Hale and his crime syndicate, which reached from as far as Texas, where he was a rancher, all the way through to Oklahoma. And it's about gaining head rights. And head rights are the rights to minerals and oil on Osage land, which only Osage people, um, Native American people, could own if they were put into guardianship or if they married someone those rights could be inherited. So what happened is that a lot of people came to Franklin and the surrounding areas would marry an Osage woman and just murder her outright 
for her inheritance. Mm. Um, the clip that you played is actually Ernest Burkhart playing by Leonardo DiCaprio uh, reading um, a children's book on mm. the Osage in, Indians. And it's quite a powerful scene because the wolf in the picture is is him mm. um, yeah it's a real it's a gripping trailer and you mentioned before the, I mean the soundscape just in that trailer alone has grabbed me um we should talk about the cast you mentioned DiCaprio just before um and it's uh, of course classic Scorsese it's a really stacked Clark stacked cast um apparently Leonardo DiCaprio was init- initially going to be cast as um uh, Tom, Tom White. White, yes. So it's really interesting the the progression of this narrative because you you have Jesse Plemons who's actually going to be playing Tom White, who's the detective. Um, but they've they've obviously switched who the focus is on um, from the novel, which is really interesting. Um, talk us through who's who, who's been selected for each of the roles and things like that, because yeah, we've got um, there's so many to mention. I, your review in the Curb does focus in on someone very special, Lily Gladstone, who was involved a lot with how much the story changed. Absolutely, Lily plays Molly Kyle Burkhart. Cole, um, many, many names. Uh, She was one of four sisters, uh, three of whom were killed um, and through nefarious means her cousins were killed. She is one of the few people who survived the Reign of Terror Mm. and unfortunately died not long afterwards from um, complications through diabetes. What Scorsese has done with Eric Roth is he has turned the focus away from it being purely a procedural, look, this is how the FBI Mm. began, to a character study of Molly and her people. And William... Hale is played by, you know, the the great, the, the very great Robert De Niro as the puppet master mm. who carries all of this. By the time we even get to Jesse Plemons, we are three quarters of the way through the movie. How it goes down as a crime enforcement versus gangland story is much less on Scorsese's mind as it is telling the story of the people who were dispossessed, who were murdered, who were treated as as property, as savages, as mm. others. And what he has produced is a an epic scream about mm. American history. Mm. Um, I've actually got a clip from um, Lily Gladstone, who's the actor who who plays Molly, as you mentioned before. I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with her. She was in films like um, Certain Women, probably most recently, First Cow. Um, she's also in Billions. Um, really, really, um, she's getting a lot of praise about her role in this, but not just to do with her performance, but also the way in which the story has shifted and, and her work that she's done alongside the whole team. So I'm going to play that for you now. Uh, we're, we're artists. 
we're storytellers, we reach into the humanity. And Native peoples are used to having anthropologists come in curious about everything that we do. Um, these, these artistic souls on the stage here cared about telling a story that pierces the veil of what society tells us we're supposed to care about and not. Um, by focusing on these conflicted characters, I really... Who else is going to challenge people to challenge their own complicity in white supremacy and such a platform, except for this man here? Um, other artists are doing that work. People listen to what this one says. So turning the lens, turning the big lens, the, the, the most golden lens into, into areas where our communities... You know, we're speaking of the 1920s, Osage community. We're, we're talking about Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Um, we're talking about a lot in our film. And why the hell does the world not know about these things? Our communities always have. Um, it's so central to everything about how we understand our place in the world. Um, we also still need... We also still need this, <laughs> you know? We need these allies. We need these allies. That was Lily Gladstone talking about her involvement with Killers of the Flower Moon. Nadine, your review in The Curb, which was um, published earlier this week, uh, describes the film as, it's, you, you say in, in your review that it's hard to imagine a film more meticulously designed. Can you talk to us about that? How I'm guessing you're talking about the sound design, the cinematography. What, who's involved? Well, all of that. I mean, mm. we've got Rodrigo um, Petra who works with Scorsese so often that, you know, we'd have to go back. A recent addition, Jack Fisk, who famously worked with everyone from Brian De Palma through to Paul Thomas Anderson and has just created this this really incredible recreation of the period. We have the recently deceased Robbie Robertson taking on the music and, of course, long-time collaborator Thelma Schumacher mm. doing the, the editing. But with a film of the, of this length and size, there are thousands and thousands of people involved. And we're not just talking about the behind-the-scenes people. We're talking about the cast. Um, mm. We're talking about Scorsese actually bringing in First Nations people from from different regions to talk about the experience of the time through their character. Um, as Lily mentioned, the the Tulsa riots are there on the mm -hmm. screen in a film shown, a silent film shown, a reel. But there's also a character who proudly walks down the street in Ku Klux Klan gear and he is an upstanding member of the community. It's just stunning how much of this is against the grain of the myths of what we see as frontier America, mm. of what we see as um, pure Americanism, this, this self-determined man who, who gets things. Mm. 
the way that these people have got things have been through slavery and colonialism and screwing over people of of the land mm. and Scorsese is not afraid to place that lens not only on the characters but also on the wider scope of the film itself. Um, it is visually over overwhelming. Mm. Um, there isn't a scene I could think of taking away. And in a three-and-a-half-hour film, that's a very rare thing to say. Yeah, that is a, quite an achievement to hold that tension as well. I mean, The Irishman was a similar length, I think actually slightly longer than Flowers of um, Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I wasn't a massive fan of The Irishman. I know some people were wheels, wheels nodding in agreement with me. Look, I know that it's a mixed opinion on him, but Scorsese's work, but, I mean, 27 films to his name such a huge achievement I feel like as Scorsese as a storyteller has so often he doesn't shy away from these more difficult topics um, usually difficult men difficult and damaged men and it seems as though that is somewhat of the focus of Killers of the Flower Moon um, I'm really I, I actually really love seeing DiCaprio on screen I think that his um, long collaboration and De Niro's long collaboration with Scorsese um, it's kind of nice to see them return back to these um, roles and be given something nice and meaty to work with. Um, I, what, what's your thoughts on how this is positioned within Scorsese's broader filmography? Well, I think this is an interesting piece because a lot of people say, oh, Scorsese, he's the guy who does the gangster films mm. or he's the guy who's about New York, he's the guy who's about damaged and venal men. Yes, he's about damaged and mm. venal men. He's also the director of Hugo. He's also the director yes. of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. He has a much broader filmography than people people realise. New York, what New York he, as well. <laughs> One of my favourites. the ultimate yes. jump in films. Yeah. <laughs> Again with Robert De Niro playing. <laughs> I love that a film. A horrible person. Yeah. yeah I love yeah. that film too. Uh, I, I was defending it recently, saying the point is that he is awful. Yes. <laughs> um, what DiCaprio has done here is incredible because DiCaprio was always a screen beauty and he has chosen here to become just the least glamorous version of himself. He spends the whole time with his mouth in a, a slackened scowl. His mm. teeth are dirty. He's he's dumb as a box of hair. Um you wonder what on earth Molly could see in Ernest. It, you just you just can't imagine it. I can see how it would have worked really well with Jesse in that role because he's slightly younger and mm. he's not known as a screen beauty. And and he and, but, and he also Jesse Plemons was of course in um, oh Jane Campion's oh, just the name is the Power of the Dog. Thank you, the Power of the Dog, where he is kind of playing this. Um, he's not actually a dumb character, but it, there's this kind of slowness to him in that character. So you can totally see him in that role, really. <laughs> yeah, you can, and he's played some pretty awful people mm. like in Black Mirror. That that was yes, it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, yes, this is one of DiCaprio's finest performances, I think. Um, he's really let himself sink into the skin mm. of a, a thoroughly reprehensible character. 
and De Niro looks like he's possibly 25 years younger. I thought that actually looking at the trailer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's having a blast mm. playing, playing Hale. This is, this is him energised, charming, mm. dangerous. Um, this, is, this is peak De Niro. Mm. Um, and I think, again, just a phenomenal performance by him. But I keep returning to Lily, yeah. Lily Gladstone. Yeah. I think she's the person that people are going to focus on because almost all of the work that she's doing is through her face, mm. through these steely, rebellious stares, these sad, withered, I can't cope with this anymore looks. And she doesn't actually have a lot of, of dialogue. Mm. But when she does speak... It's incredible. Yeah. I have heard um, such rave reviews. There's there's only been the preview screening for this film. It is going to be coming out on Thursday. Um, We... I've got actually a clip um, of of Lily Gladstone talking a little bit about more about Molly, her role, because I think that this is something that is really interesting shift that um, that um, Scorsese has done. And um, we'll just hear a little bit more about her character. Um, by playing an Osage woman who conducts herself with grace and with measure, um, but also with humor and with unshakable strength. It's the reason that um, those of you who have seen the film, and not to ruin ruin it for anybody, but it was the driving force of why the end needed to be what it is. Um, The the cultural perpetuity, the the perseverance. um, And Molly is an example of somebody who... You know, I don't. I almost don't want to talk about an acting process when it comes to her. I just had to be there and receive mm-hmm. what the community told me she needed to be, um, what my own family has told me about my great-grandmother Lily, who would have been Molly's contemporary, who was also a devoutly Catholic but also a very traditional Blackfoot woman, um, and all of those things. So, yeah, it was... I'm not sure it's me finding it so much as it finding me. <laughs> I really love um, hearing from Lily talk about all of all of the different influences that have come into the role. This seems like there is so much in this film, I'm sure lots to unpack. I'm sure you'll probably be seeing it again in the cinemas when it comes out. <laughs> they absolutely will, but I will remember no salty snacks. This is my advice for everybody who's going to see it. It's a long film. You take salty snacks, you'll be thirsty, you'll drink, you'll need to pee. <laughs> Very true. I, um, I feel like... Does Scorsese not think of people's bladders? No, no. Well, there's James Cameron and he actually puts us in water. So... <laughs> Well, you're getting your you're getting your money's worth with it for sure. Uh, the Killers of the Flower Moon is in cinemas nationwide from Thursday. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. So it has been 50 years since William Friedkin's The Exorcist first graced the silver screen. It was the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and was also one of the highest grossing horror films for several decades. And while Friedkin was hoping the Catholic Church might denounce it. It actually ended up being something of a, an advertisement for the Catholic Church. Fast forward to present day, and there is a sixth Exorcist film in the cinemas. Uh, David Gordon Green's The Exorcist Believer. Have you ever seen anything like this? 
Tommy? No, but there are people out there who have. You have some experience with possession. Yes, more than I'd like. I believe you can help get our girls back. Exorcism is a ritual. Every culture, every religion, they all use different methods. It's going to take all of them. Don't be scared. We've met before. The Exorcist <laughs> Believer. Um, so, as many listeners know, the director of the very first Exorcist, William Friedkin, died in August this year from heart failure and pneumonia. He was 87 years old. Now, recently, film critic Ed Whitfield posted this rather spicy anecdote on his socials. He said that Friedkin had reached out to him when he first heard of Green Sequel and said, uh, My signature film is about to be extended by the man who made Pineapple Express. I don't want to be around when that happens. But if there's a spirit world and I can come back, I plan to possess David Gordon Green and make his life a living hell. That's an Exorcist sequel (laughs) worth watching. Well, the reviews of The Exorcist Believer have been pretty brutal, so maybe the haunting has already begun. Maybe. Um, Will, what's it about? Okay, so Victor, played by Leslie Odom Jr., is a single parent to teenage Angela, Lydia Jewett, in suburban Georgia, USA. One day, Angela and her religious friend Catherine, played by Olivia O'Neill, run off to the woods to perform a little witchcraft. They're going to try and communicate with Angela's mother, who was killed in an earthquake in Haiti. Needless to say, something spooky happens and the girls go missing. And when they return, they aren't quite themselves. So Victor, along with Catherine's parents and a nurse played by Anne Dowd, recruit Ellen Burstein's Chris McNeil, the mother from the original Exorcist, Mm. and they team up to get a great return on investment for the production company (laughs) and kickstart a new Exorcist franchise. So this a is, as you said, <laughs> this is, as you said, million dollars d- just directed, rights. directed by David Gordon Green, who also made the recent Halloween sequels as well. So he does have some horror, yeah, horror true. legacy sequel form, they call it. And this is the fifth Exorcist sequel slash prequel. So and, and for this recent one, I heard that they, they're locked in. So they actually, regardless of how this form, the film performs, they have to make another two films. They're making another two. Yeah. Each one of them so far has ignored each of the others because <laughs> none of them have worked. But maybe this one will. Maybe. You're saying, no, it won't. <laughs> because there is no need to make a sequel to The Exorcist. No. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. And you mentioned Ellen Burstyn. Of course, she stars in, in William Friedkin's original. I heard there was some uh, – she, she initially got offered a, um, a certain amount to play, to return to the, her role, and she, she just turned it down immediately. Then they doubled what they were going to offer her. And she said yes, but then she donated um, the money to – she set up a, a funded an MFA scholarship for actors at Pace University. Um, I just love Burston. I feel like that's such a boss move. I feel like, oh, I feel slightly better about the film now. <laughs> yeah. So some actors got, you know, their, wait, their school fees sorted out for them. It's a very confusing film to, to – I mean, I understand mm. exactly why it was made. You know, and I'm, I appreciate for money. Yeah, because yeah, 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 yeah. people will need to know. But it's it's I don't I don't um 
it doesn't, none, nothing works. Nothing works. So, I mean, he made these Halloween films and Halloween and The Exorcist are both scary films from the 70s and that's about all they've got in common. But I think Green seems to think they're both broadly similar. They're cool and they're spooky and they're quote unquote iconic and they make great franchise fodder. But The Exorcist isn't like this at all, the original Exorcist. It, the test of a good horror film, I always think, is if you can remove the horror elements and it still functions as a drama. Mm. And The Exorcist is shocking and spooky and slow-burning and ambiguous. And, and it shocked people for fusing Catholicism and a tortured crisis of faith and, and visceral horror, which is pretty shocking for mainstream entertainment in the 70s. Um, and it's about the erosion of stability, of optimism, of faith, and that's a very 70s story. So there seems like a reason for this story to be told, but there is absolutely no reason to tell this <laughs> This story now. Um, I should say something about the film itself. I mean, look, okay, just last thing on the original Exorcist. They, it seems like they've probably seen the first film, but they were only half watching it and half reading some graphs of projected income. <laughs> but uh, so the first half of Exorcist Believer is pretty average, competent thriller about two children going missing with possible paranormal stuff bubbling away in the background. And it's the second half where frankly it completely pisses its pants as it tries to frankenstein in elements of the original and the pace picks up not because it serves the material but because they're trying to pack in a whole bunch of stuff mm. um, everybody starts explaining the themes of the script multiple times though they're not that complicated ellen Burstyn from the original walks in and then out um, the original theme music plays in like a logo um, and then it all goes pretty much as you'd expect it to when the exorcism at the end is anticlimactic and even boring, which is oh. a feat. I find that that uh, trick of basically, like you say, Frankensteining the original, which people know and love and mm. is one of the most iconic films of the century, uh, into into the sequel. I mean, I feel like they did that with The Matrix and the, the recent, you know... I, mean, I know some people love that film, but I feel as though that seeing the OG Matrix, it just made me want to see that rather than this shit yeah. sequel. Yeah, well, there's a lot of reliance on just recognising mm. things at the moment. I think we talked about it with Indiana Jones as well. Just like, yeah. look, here's that thing that you yeah. liked before. Comforting and familiar. Here it is again. Yeah. It's like, here's, here's <laughs> the song that you've heard playing again. You yeah. know, it, there's there's nothing more to it. Um, Nadine, you have, your review of The Exorcist Believer is also on the curb. Um, what were your thoughts on this? <laughs> It is hackery, <laughs> just absolute empty hackery. I think that it does have a fairly strong start with the Haiti section yeah. and the ideas of, of voodoo and the choice that Victor has to make to save either his, his wife or his daughter. And that sets up a dynamic that will work through the film. But as soon as we get to... Um, Chris McNeil, the whole thing falls apart. Mm. She's there to exposition dump. She's there to jangle some keys in front of you and say, see, remember this? She's fundamentally, like, I, I love Ellen, but Chris McNeil is fundamentally misunderstood as a character here. Chris McNeil loved her daughter. She would never use her daughter's story for profit. The whole thing was keeping it quiet, keeping Regan protected. And they've completely changed who, who Chris is. We also don't actually have an exorcist. The first film 
was about Karis as much as it was about Chris and Regan. Mm. It was about his faith, his sacrifice. We just have a bunch of of random people, some who do root medicine. There's a Catholic priest who gets turned down to do the exorcism because Catholic Church realises they can be sued now. We have um, some sort of Baptist-type people. We have a former nun endowed who's just kind of given a rosary and said, off you go, try it out. Might work, probably but won't. Maybe um, you didn't understand the themes of the film, Nadine, because it's about teamwork and how we all have to yeah, work it's together. About Avengers Assemble, yeah, it's, <laughs> it is so Avengers Assemble, isn't really? it? Really, oh. and and we don't even get an exorcism because I'm, I'm not even going to. I'm, it, I'm reading. I'm reading that as an exorcism of sorts. An exorcism Yay. of the of the exorcism of, 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 of sorts would have been a great title for the film. <laughs> yeah. A kind of exorcism. Um, David Gordon Green and Jason Blum were, you know, proudly talking about, "Oh, we got this IP, and it's yeah. And, yeah. and this kind of venal grabbing of." Formative so works. Bloom's company just has to stop. Bloom's mm. company, Bloomhouse. You know, he's a horror schlock producer extraordinaire. Yeah. And the opening of the film is like the first warning because you get the logo <laughs> for Bloomhouse, and it's like the Marvel Pictures logo with all the different. Here's all the IPs yeah. that we have the rights to, yeah. and so you get you know the nun turn is is there, and then and then Michael Myers from Halloween is there, and I don't know what they're going to put. Bit they of a sting from Tubular Bells in there. <laughs> it was like you want to, you yeah. want to advertise your version of the Grudge. Yeah, okay. It's, it, it's just like <laughs> IP farming. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. Like I said, it's not really made for human consumption. It's it's a spreadsheet of a film. It's made to fill some cells on the spreadsheet. <laughs> it's kind of shocking that I mean. You said you, meant, you touched upon this before, Will, but there will be so many people who are just like, oh, I just have to see what it is. It's almost like this kind of um, car crash film mm-hmm. that where you just need to know, do they do an okay job of, of this? And part of that is tangled up with nostalgia for for the previous film that came before, but it's this sense of, like, they know they can get at least a few um, bums on seats. Yeah. Um, you... And they can probably make... I mean, I don't know if they'll be able to make back what they paid Burston because they paid her a lot, but, hey. What do they pay <laughs> Who knows? Well, twice what the original offer was. Twice, twice what? <laughs> Who knows? What do they, what do they pay a, 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 an elderly <laughs> woman in Hollywood these days? Well, at least... Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a topic for another no discussion. No wonder she wanted double. <laughs> I mean, it's already made a, a bit of bank. I don't know if it's made. I mean, the budget was thirty million. It's made eighty five. I mean, it's like, um, it, you know, it, it's coming out over Halloween. Mm. It actually came out on the thirteenth, I think, against the, um, the the Taylor Swift concert movie, which wouldn't have been a great time. <laughs> Friday the thirteenth as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Or it's, oh, maybe it came out earlier. I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> paying that much attention. I haven't researched this enough, frankly. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, it's it's. I'm sure it's going to make its money, and it's um, it, it really is just. Some people are going to go in, and they're going to go. I was mildly satisfied by the scares mm. of that. I don't think they should be. I think we should push for more. We should yeah. push for good films, but this will do. Um, 
I just, can I just read something? This is a Go review. This is a review that it made me think of. This isn't a review of The Exorcist Believer. This is a review of Star Trek Into Darkness from 2013. And it's by um, the writer and comic Branson Reese. Um, and it's from Letterboxd from last year. But J.J. Abrams, you can substitute in David Gordon Green here, <laughs> isn't a man so much as he's an avatar of cultural entropy. If you make something popular enough, eventually you will die or sell it off and a person in thick-rimmed glasses whose main artistic vision is that he loves to have meetings will take it and sandblast it until it's nothing. <laughs> I hate to see this happen here, but maybe it's good that this happened. Maybe every franchise should collapse into a version of itself that makes shareholders nod and shake each other's hands. And maybe we should learn to speak in a language that rich people who don't dream can't comprehend. <laughs> that feels like uh, that could perfectly be um, uh, applied to the exorcist believer. Do you want me to come on and read that every several weeks? <laughs> well, just to get an audio <laughs> file of that and just play it out. <laughs> Some sad music yeah. underneath. Yeah, it's amazing how many films would fit into that to that film that review genre. Yeah. Um, well, if you want to not take Will and Dean's advice, you can check out The Exorcist Believer in cinemas now because it's playing. It. <laughs> it's playing around yeah, the country. Please don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> don't give them any more money. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. You are indeed listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Nadine Whitney, Wilcox and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we reviewed a screen adaptation of David Grant's 2017 novel, Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese. The film will be in cinemas this Thursday. And we finished up the hour with The Exorcist Believer, directed by David Gordon Green, which is in cinemas now. Uh, before we wrap up, though, for tonight, uh, we thought we'd give some recommendations. You just heard Sparks. They are going to be uh, in conversation with Cerise Howard, who is the program director of MQFF. Uh, and also one of the Primal Screen team. Uh, So definitely tune in next week. Sparks are actually in Melbourne next week, so you can get a ticket to their show. Yes, very exciting. Um, Did you see uh, the Edgar Wright's um, film on that? I did. Look, I've been a long-time fan of those two crazy brothers. Um, (laughs) They are just great, and I, I enjoy... Every weird little thing they do, except Annette. Oh, yeah. Did not enjoy so, Annette. I'm not a big fan of Annette, but talking about the film with Cerise uh, that week that we covered it, she kind of she just brought me round to it, and I was like, I didn't even like this film, and she somehow managed to make me like it. <laughs> but I did really love um, the Edgar Wright film on Sparks, and 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 just their relationship to cinema, which you know, Cerise will she was in conversation with them, and just unpacking all of these cinematic references throughout their work. So it'll be a really um, really exciting episode next week. I hope you can tune in for that. Um, will, what have you been watching and loving this week? Uh, well, I know you've already discussed it, but I just want to make sure that everybody goes and sees <laughs> Sick of Myself because yes. it's extremely um, funny and revolting <laughs> and weird. And um, it's kind of triangle of sadnessy. Yes, it in is. Its, in its... But it's better. But... It's better. <laughs> oh, don't pit them against each other. Yeah, they can, be, they can be two Eat the Rich films, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's excellent and I have literally just found out that um, the, the, the film... Dream Scenario, which is coming out in about a month, starring Nicolas Cage as a man who 
turns up in everybody's dreams simultaneously, <laughs> is also directed by uh, uh, Christopher uh, Bordley, who who made who made Sick of Myself. So that's made me um, significantly more excited for yes. that film. Yes, uh, well worth. Um, well, listen back to our episode of Sick of Myself, but just go see it. Um, it's still in cinemas. Um, I hope that it's in cinemas for a, a long while. It's it's a great one. It's such a like I love that kind of uncomfortable comedy. It's like my favourite type of <laughs> humour, and yeah. it, it just it's so well done. Um, really, really love that film as well. Um, well, it's um, another. I, this isn't a recent uh, release by any means, but I finally got around to watching Search Party. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm only a few eps in, but I'm loving that. Have you watched that, Nadine? Or I haven't. No, I don't have okay. as much time for TV as I'd like. It is a big commitment um, with the TV shows to films. I mean, we get through with well, if you're watching 900 films a year like Nadine, I, I can't imagine that you watch a whole lot of TV. But um, it is one that is um, got heaps of really great reviews, and it just wasn't. It was kind of on the back of my radar. Yeah, you, yeah, have yeah. And got, it's it's not a, it's a, 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 as big a commitment because I think they're half hour episodes. Yeah, the ten episode seasons, that kind of thing. So I mean, it's still quite a lot. Of hours, but yeah. I mean, I'm never going to watch Game of Thrones because it's something like a 60 hour commitment. And, <laughs> Have you uh, not watched Game of Thrones? <laughs> no, <never. laughs> I actually don't scream at me. <laughs> some, <laughs> some people get very upset when I say that. I, I did, <laughs> yeah, I did actually miss several seasons of Game of Thrones, and I just watched one of those like 19 minute. Um, catch up on <laughs> YouTube videos. You can do that as well. But you know what? I missed it and then it ended and no one spoke of it ever again. <laughs> so I'm, I've caught back up again. Yeah. So. Well, um, rather than watch Game of Thrones, I do recommend checking out Search Party, which is, um, yeah, just, just really dark comedy uh, TV series uh, that's created by Sarah Violet Bliss, Charles Rogers and uh, Michael Showater. It's set in New York City. Uh, it stars Maybe from Arrest development uh just lots of very unlikable people on screen uh but not in a way that is at least currently not it's not it's kind of just enjoyable to watch um they're recognizably unlikable unlikable yeah yeah yeah. you can kind of think to it yeah (laughs) speaking of recognizably unlikable the fall of the house of usher which is on netflix i did actually get through and if you want to watch a whole bunch of Edgar Allan Poe tales filtered through killing off the Sackler family. It's your go-to. Wow. Um, okay. What a, what a line. <laughs> am I the only person who's never liked anything that Mike Flanagan has done? Well, I'm on to, um, yeah, I'm sort of, I sometimes don't mind him. He made that uh, sequel to The Shining, which I could speak about in the same breath as the sequel to The Exorcist, but it's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Yeah, we're now, we've now stepped into the what not to watch territory. <laughs> Don't watch that. Don't watch Sorry, that. But... No. Okay, well, I'm glad that the new Mike Flanagan is, is, is maybe... Worth a watch. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it po- it's possibly overlong, and I don't know if Poe enthusiasts and purists will adore it or hate it. I, I really, I really don't know. Mm. Um, but there are so many references that you get, and it does feature one of the best monologues by Bruce Greenwood playing Roderick Usher, talking about what happens when life gives you lemons before you make lemonade. It's pure poetry. Oh, Just and that's see on if you Netflix. Can find that bit. 
That's on Netflix. That's now? on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you like, would like to check that out. That's at Netflix on Netflix. Sick of myself is in cinemas, and Search Party I think is what am I streaming it on? Uh, it's on SBS. Uh, SBS. There we go. Uh, as always, you can listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Special shout out to Maya who edits our podcast and also helps out with the socials. Will Nadine, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Flick. Thank thanks, you. Will. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 